so cool to be a church. It is. It's easy to come. Nordista's here? What's up, dude? Is it not? Is it not cool to be a church? Welcome back. Um, the one day a year you're not touring. Uh, but anyway, I, I just, man, it's so cool. It's so cool that, that we're here. And, you know, I, I understand that it can get legalistic. It can get traditional. It can get, I know all the baggage that church has because we're humans and humans have baggage. Everything has baggage. But, man, it's so special that we get to gather here freely and, and break open the word of God and, and literally like open up our hearts to the living God of the world who will in fact speak to our hearts and change our lives. God has changed my life. That is a fact. The Holy Spirit has shifted who I am, how I treat people, how I see the world, why I feel like I was born to breathe, to live here. It's really special, man. And I just, I feel extra thankful, I guess, because I had the week off and I was officiating a wedding, you know, stupid wedding. I had to miss church, you know. It just opened my eyes. During prayer at nine, I was just praying and thinking about, it's awesome that we're here. The Bible's so awesome. It's so different. What Jesus does for us is so cool. And so anyway, I don't know. Love you. We're back in 1 Samuel. Today, we're gonna be in 1 Samuel chapter eight. Today, it will be especially important that you have a Bible or a phone that can pull up 1 Samuel 8. So pull up 1 Samuel 8. We're going to be in verses 1 through 9. I'm going to recap uh, what last week was. Man, if you guys were here last week, you were blessed. I listened back to the podcast, uh, what Gentry Wigington had to share. Man, he had a word for you guys. And I, it just sounded like an awesome conversation. So uh, thank you, Gentry, for preaching last week. And, and what a word. I feel like the Holy Spirit was just moving in you in a really cool way. But to recap, chapter seven ends uh, with Israel in a pretty good spot. So Israel's humble in heart, they're submissive to the Lord, and their enemy, the Philistines, have been subdued. Good news. In chapter seven, verse three, it says, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, put away all the foreign gods. And the Israelites respond and they do it. They return with all their hearts. And near the end of chapter seven, Samuel, the, the priest slash judge slash prophet, he builds this altar made of stone. It's called Ebenezer. And it stands for, until now, the Lord has helped us. So basically, Israel's just remembering, man, God's so helpful. He's awesome. He's been with us from the beginning. And it says that God's hand is against the Philistines, the enemy of Israel, all the days of Samuel. So that's where we've been. That's what chapter seven was. And now we're gonna be in chapter eight, verses one through nine. Only today, we're gonna start very differently. Um, we're gonna try something out. If you're new here, we are experimenting with how to Bible study together as a church family. The hope is that this carries over into your lives Monday through Saturday. So we ask a lot of questions while we're in 1 Samuel. We talk a lot as a family. And my hope is to stoke some curiosity in you that as you read the scripture on your own, you learn how to, to see the text, how to ask questions, how to explore. Because the truth is, scripture is full of richness. I had a teaching meeting over chapter eight, verses one through nine only, and it went two hours and we had to cut it short because we were just being mesmerized by how awesome this chapter is. And so Today, inevitably, I'm gonna ask you to participate in some ways that'll make you feel weird and uncomfortable if you're used to a certain type of church gathering. And I just ask you to, to bear with me. 
just to lean in, participate. What's the worst that could happen? It's just gonna be a little awkward. We'll have some sweaty palms together and we'll be fine. Then we'll get out of here and go get some lunch for Mother's Day. So anyway, lean in with me. So today our participation is gonna look different in this way. I'm gonna invite you to read 1 Samuel 8, verses one through nine. For the first like six to eight minutes of our gathering, we're gonna play some real chill, sweet, somber music. And you're gonna read. And I just want you to write down what you notice. So pull out a phone, a pen, a paper, whatever you need to just log what you notice. Play detective. Read it four times, six times, eight times. Try to think about everyone involved in this text. What's taking place? Why is it taking place? What might all the parties involved might have felt as the story unfolds? And my assignment is simply that you write down some of these things, what you notice, what you learn, what you have thoughts about. And if you need help, we're gonna put some questions on the screen. My encouragement is don't worry about those questions unless you just don't know what to think about. So read the text, think for yourself, and if you need some guidance, there's some questions, but those aren't like the supreme questions, you know, so you don't have to use them. Okay, so that's it. You're gonna read the first nine verses, then I'm gonna come back up and give some of my, I got four takeaways that I wanna share. I gotta preach just like a little bit, you know what I'm saying? So anyway, all right, yeah, throw those questions up. The slide that was just up, and then we'll, uh, yeah, boom. So we'll take five to seven minutes. Go ahead and read, reflect, take some notes. Instrumental gets you emotional for no reason. Make you start crying. I don't even know. I'm fine, but this is tough. All right, um, let's bring it back. So uh, this next part, I'm just gonna share four observations that I have uh, that I got out of the text. And then at the end, we're gonna circle up and, and share one thing we learned in our own time, to, just thinking on our own. One thing we learned, hopefully, from the observations that I've shared, and then maybe one thing we can pray out of 1 Samuel 8 if we had to pick something. So real simple stuff here. My hope is that you start realizing you can do this at any point in time on your own with your people. And if you'll make a practice of getting with a few of your friends and surrounding scripture and choose to be curious about the story, um, some really cool things can happen with scripture. Um, and so anyway, I hope you know this is for you uh, throughout the week, not just for Sundays. All right, observations. Um, so we're watching a theocracy turn to monarchy right before our eyes. We, we're watching it happening right here. Obviously, we have a request. We want a king. Uh, we want to stop doing what we've been doing and start something different. Um, so this is a pretty substantial move Israel's making. Um, so uh, the first thing that I notice um, is this connection between disappointment and deconstruction. There's such a connection between disappointment and, and deconstruction here. So in this passage, we have a group of elders who approach Samuel uh, and they request a king. Now, uh, in my conversations uh, and in my own study, I, I'm not sure who this group of elders was, if it was like an elected position. The best I can tell, it's just a bunch of old heads, a bunch of people that um, have been around, that, that care for Israel, that have, in my head at least, uh, maybe I'm making this up, but I, I think it's safe to assume, to be clear, uh, they may have known Eli in his old age. They might remember him. 
They may have known Eli's sons. You guys remember Eli's sons and the mess they made? Really fumbled the bag with uh, taking care of the temple. Scandalous, scandalous men. Not great. They probably remember young Samuel growing up and, and feeling hope in Samuel. Oh, I think this guy actually kind of has it right. He's got a pure heart. All the words that he shares from the Lord, that none of them are falling to the ground, as it says in 1 Samuel, right? So, but then what do we learn? Now Samuel's sons have fumbled the bag. They've done it too. So now we've got two sets of sons, right, who've really messed this thing up, made a mess, taken bribes, really messed up the religious authority they were carrying. And so we've got these elders who've seen a lot. They've seen people do it right. They've seen people do it wrong. And you just get this sense that they're really disappointed. They're just kind of tired of this thing, of the bipolar nature of the religious leadership. It just doesn't seem to be working. They feel jaded. They've seen failure after failure. And so what do they do? What do the elders do? I think it's important that at least something I noticed in my time is something they don't do. You don't get the sense that they pray, that they seek the scriptures, that they seek the heart of God. Really, the, the thing you get a sense about is that they just are wanting something different. They need something different. They're frustrated. They're tired of this game that they're playing, and they need something different. Let's leave behind this era and let's get to something better. And really the only reason it's better is because it's not what it used to be. Doesn't it kind of have that vibe? Like just something else, give us a king, right? So they've got more of a plan of reaction than a plan of vision. Why? Because they're hurt. When are you most ready to react rather than live out of vision? When you're hurt and you're PO'd, when you've offended me, that's when I no longer have vision. I just have words for your face, you know? That's what's happening, it feels like here. But there's a problem with this way of thinking. In chapter seven, verse three, when Samuel says, if you are returning to the blank, if you're returning to who? Verse three, yeah, the Lord. If you're returning to the Lord, not if, hey, if you're gonna return to Samuel, if you're gonna return to the priest, if you're gonna return to the temple, there's this call, Israel, return to the Lord with all of your heart. And in this moment, it feels like the elders are forsaking God because of human failure. They're connecting dots that need not be connected. Because of Samuel, his sons, Eli, his sons, they're going, this don't work. But they're missing something critical. Human failure is already the story of scripture, even by this point. The Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy. The scriptures testify, humans always break covenant with God. God always remains faithful and delivers his people. That's the story. Adam and Eve, Abraham and Sarah, Moses, the two sets of 10 commandments because the first one got broke because of a temper tantrum because of a golden calf, remember? It has not been pretty. So it's interesting to me that the elders don't pause and think, oh wait, this has happened before. And not only has it happened once, it's happened twice, it's happened three, I don't even got enough fingers and toe. It's happened over and over and over again. Oh, maybe it's happening again. 
Humans are failing God's standard, but it doesn't mean we need to abandon God's plan. It just means humans aren't God. But they're not having this way of thinking. Their disappointment is fogging their ability to think and act out of godly wisdom, their own disappointment, their own frustration with another man. And I couldn't help, I think it's kind of obvious, I'm trying to draw us to something that happens today. I've had a few conversations, I don't want to exaggerate, but I certainly had a few, talking to young people who are really disappointed, really hurt by failed leadership. I mean, when I say, hey, pastor, scandal, you guys just thought of like seven different things. Like not all of you just thought of the same pastor. You thought of a lot of different pastors and all of them are involved in scandals. It's frustrating, isn't it? It's disappointing. Have you ever heard someone say, I've been hurt by the church or I just, I don't like the church. The church is, is not my place. Where it feels like the church and, the, and God himself are being made the same thing where their decision to kind of abandon faith is attached to their disappointment in the church or a leader. So disappointment kind of grabs the wheel of our decision-making. It's just something I noticed. Now, I'm really reducing deconstruction to something very simple right here. I'm not gonna talk about all the nuances that go into that, but it's just something I noticed. Isn't it real when someone hurts us, especially in the faith, it kind of rattles us a little bit. Kind of makes us question God's role in all this. Kind of makes it easy to change direction. I see this in Israel right here. The elders are like, you know what? We've seen enough men fail. Why don't we just get a king, right? Sorry, right. that's the first thing I noticed. Second thing, a question posed. A light to nations or a like the nations? Hmm, interesting. Sounds similar, vastly different. Um, all right. The Israelites find themselves wanting to be like other nations, Verse five, behold, you are old and your sons don't walk in your ways. That's a tough thing to say to Samuel, the father of his sons. He's like, all right, point taken. So appoint for us a king to judge all the nations. So at the time we've got priests and judges kind of ruling it, it's breaking down. And I'm not sure how many kingdoms and kings that they've been exposed to, but certainly enough to where they go, we have a better idea. Give us a king, make us like them. But what's really influencing this request? What is leading them to ask specifically for a monarchy, for a king? Is it God? Is it the Torah? Is it prayer? Is it an open heart of surrender? God, what, what's best? Or is it simply failed leadership causing them to look to their neighbor and go, whatever that is over there, we want that. Their only compass in this moment is comparison. Super interesting. The only compass steering their, their like plan, their thinking for their nation is comparing themselves to other nations. The problem with that is that Israel was born, was called to be a light to other nations. In Exodus 19, five and six, God's making a covenant with Israel and he says this, therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be a special treasure to me above all people for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
From the beginning, Israel set apart to be unique and different. Exodus 19.8, two verses later, all of Israel answers God together and says, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So the covenant's made. Isaiah 42.6 says this, God says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people and as a light to the Gentiles. In other words, the salvation of the Lord comes through Israel. The glory of God, the wonder of the Lord is supposed to come through the people of Israel. From the time Israel was birthed, if you think about Abraham and Sarah and the story of a miraculous birth and a very old woman, from the beginning, something was unique about this nation. When you think about God freeing the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, 10 plagues, all critiquing the various gods of Egypt. From the beginning, God used Israel to show other nations, Israel's God is not like your God, he's different. He is not the God of Egypt. He's not the God of the Philistines. He's the God of Israel. And so from the beginning, Israel's supposed to be different. So we know it's a red flag. The minute that their reasoning for, react, for requesting a king is like other nations. They've already misstepped. In the same way that the church is set apart. Going to church is different than going to a football game, which is different than going to a concert. And hopefully you can tell because of the fruit that comes from going to a church, right? Hopefully the church has some kind of impact that reminds you of King Jesus. And the minute the church begins to look anywhere outside of Jesus, what are you saying? Where are you going? What are you calling us into? The minute they start comparing themselves to something other than Jesus himself, we've run amok. We've missed it. Jesus sets who the church is. God sets who Israel is. And so in the same way, I feel like that Israel is, is struggling with this identity crisis, looking to other nations. Number three, there's just this kind of bleak reality in life where every generation has to choose for themselves who they're gonna be and whether or not they will give their life to the Lord. It, this passage made me realize just how fragile the state of a nation can be. Doesn't it feel like so bipolar of Israel? Like at the end of chapter seven, we're doing good. We've returned to the Lord. We've laid down our idols. Philistines is at bay, no problem. God's good, he's near, prophesying through Samuel. Everything's great. Chapter eight, verse four, what's going on? How are we already doing this? But if you look at verses one through three, we get a really important detail. Samuel's old now and he's got sons old enough to have a say informing the people or the lack of forming the people, which means we probably had two or three decades at least go by. So we've got another generation that's raised up, a bunch of five-year-olds that are now 25-year-olds that got jobs and opinions and they're impacting stuff. And they didn't used to do that. And it starts changing the cultural temperature. And it just kind of reminds you, you know, if you read the Old Testament, it makes it feel like one day Israel's hot and one day Israel's cold. One day Israel loves God and the next day they hate God. But really, a lot of times what you have is time moving forward, a generation raising up and deciding for themselves, are we gonna belong to God or not? Are we gonna be like our parents and their rebellion? Are we gonna be like our parents and their faithfulness? Or are we going a different route? And I was just reminded sort of of the, 
the fickle nature of a nation when a new generation raises up and what that means. Is that not true? Have you seen that parallel in today's world? How, how do you, how, how, I mean, y'all, I feel, look, I am old, I guess. I'm not, I'm 31. I know in the grand scheme of things, hopefully we're not halfway through yet, okay? Yo, the world is so different. What is the world I'm in now compared to when I was eight? You know what I mean? Other than that, there's not flying cars. I kind of thought there'd be flying cars by now. But I didn't see a lot of this coming. I think this passage should humble us and remind us, man, a generation can make a difference. And they have to choose for themselves. Who's God and who are they? Anyway, all right. Last one. Last thing I noticed, God's response. A couple of special things here. Verses seven and eight. It says, obey the voice of the people for they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. So in verse five, we learn Samuel is displeased. He's frustrated. Why? Not because they've insulted Samuel's sons, which they did to his face, but because they've requested a king and Samuel knows this is not the way. But God says, hey, they're doing this to me. And I feel like he had to say that because I feel like Samuel was like tore up, but like a little too tore up. And God's like, chill, I've been around. This is not the first time this is happening. It's your first time this is happening. This ain't my first time this is happening, all right? They're doing this to me. Like, and they've been doing this since Egypt. Remember Sinai, remember the calf, remember all these stories of rebellion and disobedience. Like this is kind of what it looks like. God is so clearly familiar with what it looks like for his running theme of faithfulness to be met with disobedience. And the people, they think they're getting back at at failed leadership, but really what they're doing is getting back at God. It reminds me of Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Because what do the people think they're doing? Mocking a, a fake Messiah. But what are they really doing? Mocking God himself to his face. Like there's kind of that feeling of they do this to me. I also see a John 15 verse 20 parallel. I thought about Jesus saying, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. I feel like Samuel's getting this lesson of, man, when you stick with me, you are in the crosshairs of being rejected because of your faithfulness to what I say. When you stick with me, you're always in the crosshairs of being rejected for your obedience to what I say. Welcome to the party. But how does God respond when he's treated this way? In verse nine, he says, Obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king. There's two things I see here. The first thing I notice is God is gentle with them. He takes a really common parenting approach where he goes, hey, let them try this out. Give them what they asked for. It's that thing where you go, hey, let them do this for a little bit. Let them experience the consequences of their short-sighted thinking, right? He doesn't beat them over the head, doesn't yell at them or punish them. He just goes, let's give them what they're asking for. Let them experience this. But then second, like a good father, he says, but make sure you give them instructions. Warn them what a king is gonna be like. God being rich in his mercy goes, I'm gonna give you what you asked for, but I, I just wanna give you a heads up because having a king is not as sweet as you think it's going to be. In fact, I'll give you a homework assignment. Verses 10 through 22, 
is Samuel's description of what a king is gonna be like. He gets literally very specific. Here's what's gonna change when you have a king. But God is merciful with the people of Israel. He's slow to anger. He's quick to reach into his mercy. I remember a friend telling me, it seems like the more that, that you crush Jesus, the sweeter he gets. Like the more you tortured him, the more you beat him, it just felt like only sweetness would ooze out of him. That father forgive them on the cross. Like the moment he could have been so bitter and angry at the people killing him, he, he was just sweet. I sense this in God here. The people of Israel rejecting him yet another time and God goes, give them what they're asking for, give them a warning, but give them what they want. And so those are some of my observations some of the things that I was plucking out from scripture. And so now I wanna, I wanna segue into us having some moments to, to share in your own reading time. What did you pick out of this passage? What did you notice? What are some things that, that was stirring in your mind? And of the things that I've just shared, what's some ideas that maybe sparked? And then if you were gonna pray, like, all right, God, taking in 1 Samuel 8, these first nine verses, man, help me to remember this about you or help me to remember this about life or what's something you can pray for Maybe take some time to share that. And so as you do that, I'll try to pass around communion to each group. We're gonna put three questions on the screen. So circle up with like four or five people. If you came with your fam, circle up with your family and let's just keep digging. We're just gonna keep Bible study. We're gonna keep nerding out a little bit. So right now, go ahead and circle up chairs. Three to five people. Share one thing you learned from your time reading, one thing you thought about during teaching, and one thing maybe you could pray about. And then uh, take communion together. After you talk through these questions, take communion together. Let's do it. Let's chop it up. The more we participate, the better it will be. Love you guys.